0: Good morning. They do that better for me than they do for you. <laughs> like Matthew said, my name is Mark, I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redemption Gateway. And uh, in preparation for this message today, I was trying to think through, what is my job, What is my role? And I see my role today is that of an instructor. And my goal today is I want to teach you how to complain. Shouldn't be too long of a message. We're all naturally gifted at that. You know, complaining is just something that is naturally born into us. I've got three kids. I've got a four-year-old uh, and then a middle child son who just turned three yesterday, and I've got a 20-ish month old at home. Uh, and I never had to teach any of them how to complain, right? But, but for those of you that have kids, you know how this goes. So my, like, you know, one of the kids sees there's Perceived injustice such as hey, here's this toy that I haven't even thought about and forgot that I had I haven't touched it in three months and suddenly my sister has it. I Need it. I want it and within 13 seconds. She's not sharing And the complaining begins And that's not a that's not an issue. It's not a gift that's unique to children This continues in us as we get older think about your workplace the people you connect with at the gym and other places that you go we tend to connect and develop relationship with the people with whom we share a common gripe. So we can get around the water cooler and complain together about that person or that thing that we don't like. We paint it better in Christian circles where we get together and we complain about this presidential candidate or that one or both of them at the same time, the lack of a third, right? We, we just have this natural tendency to find people like-minded and complain alongside them. It's this twisted way that we build and develop relationship. And so you don't actually need me to teach you how to complain, but you do. And here's why. The Bible tells us it's okay to complain. It's okay to complain, and here in Psalm 73, we've got this this beautiful picture where half the Psalm is Asaph complaining openly and loudly to God. And you never get a sense as he's writing that he's in fear of how God's going to respond to him. You you don't see in here at any point Asaph going, I hope God doesn't take this the wrong way. Hope God doesn't turn his back on me. Hope God doesn't reject me. And you don't get any sense from Asaph's writings that God is infuriated with him at all. It is okay to complain. There is a place for complaining and the proper outlet for it is in prayer. This whole series on the Psalms is about uh, God teaching us how to pray, us learning to pray through the Psalms. And if complaint shows up not just in Psalm 73, but throughout many of the Psalms, dozens of them, Asaph, Solomon, David, all these authors, complaint is a regular part of what they do. And if it's there in God's instruction book on how to pray, then we need to learn how to complain We need to learn how to complain. That's what we'll be looking at today in Psalm 73. But before we dive into the passage, I think what will be helpful is for us to understand why and when we complain. What's the context for our complaining? See, all of our context, our circumstances, our lives are different. What you've got going on is different than what what I've got going on. But there's one thing that all of our complaining has in common. And it's this. We complain... When our expectations don't line up with our experience, when there's a gap between what I expect to happen and what actually happens, we complain. We've got to fill in that gap with something. We have to find some way to reconcile the difference between our expectations and our experience and complaint for many of us is our default on how we deal with that. And in Psalm 73, Asaph does this exact thing. He follows this pattern. Now, he he does it better than we would. He uses very eloquent words. And what we see is he sets his expectations in verse 1. Verse 1, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Here's my expectation, Asaph says. My expectation is that God is good to good people. To those who are pure in heart, God is good. And the implication in this is therefore then that God is not good to those who are not pure in heart. There's his expectation. God's good to people who are good. And then he spends 14 verses, 14 verses complaining and laying out his beef with God because God, it doesn't really seem like you're good. What happens is is Asaph he looks around. He goes, man, I, I'm pretty good. I do the right stuff. I go to synagogue every time when I'm supposed to. I pray. I make sacrifices. I'm, I follow God. I try really hard, but I don't seem to get a lot of results. I don't have a lot of success. Then he looks around at everyone else who's not as good as him, the wicked, the arrogant, the unjust, the terms he uses to describe them in here. He looks around. and He says, something doesn't line up. I should be getting what's good, they should be getting what's bad, but it seems like the opposite is true. My life is difficult, theirs is easy. And in the first, in the next 14 verses, he lays out all of these ways in which he's not getting what he deserves and they aren't getting what they deserve. So verse 3, the arrogant, when I was envious of the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes, the wicked have something that I don't have and would really like, riches, ease, comfortable life, prosperity. I'd like that, and I don't have it, they do. Verse four, they have no pangs until death. They don't get sick, they don't suffer. Their bodies are fat and sleek. It's an interesting combination, fat and sleek. You wouldn't think those two go together. It's almost like he's saying, they get to eat whatever they want. They don't follow God's instructions on what the proper food is to eat, and and nothing happens to them. I don't know about you, I'm gonna stop a Taco Bell on the way home and get a bean burrito and by the time it's consumed, I'll have gained three pounds, right? The, their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble, they're not stricken, they don't seem to face any oppression or any negative feedback from anyone else. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. Their life is easy. They scoff and they speak with malice. He gets a little bit harder on them. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They, they look down on and oppress other people to get their way. And nothing ever seems to happen to them. Their life just as easy. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heaven. It's like they, they curse God and say, God, what are you going to do about it? Are you even there? I'm going to do what I want. They curse God, reject, deny God. The Second half of verse 9 is, is my favorite part of this. It says that their tongue struts throughout the earth. I googled strut. And one of the first things that came up um, is this, uh, in the 1970s and 80s, it was this great period of American filmmaking where they combined disco with movies. Uh, And there's a movie, it was released in 1983, uh, it's got John Travolta in it. Okay, some of you have seen this movie. Uh, But at the very end of the movie, he's kind of reached the the pinnacle, the climax of what he would ever need in his life. At the very end, he's kissed the girl, he says, you know what I want to do now? I want to strut. Cue the music. You can't tell by the way I use my walk. of a woman's man. No time. Any two minutes. If you ever watch this, it's two minutes of your life that you will never get back. Okay? I, I've watched it for you so that you don't have to. But it's Travolta. He spends two minutes just strutting. Seriously, the camera pans as he's just walking throughout the city. And he's got his skinny jeans and the belt buckle's undone. He's just got this cocky bounce to his step and... His arrogance dripping off of him. And he's strutting. It's like he's saying, nothing's going to touch me. Nothing's going to get in my way. Nothing can stop me. I'm all there is. He struts. And Asaph says, the tongues of the wicked strut throughout the earth. They've got this cocky arrogance to them and say, God, what are you going to do? Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm going to get what I want. They strut. And Asaph, he looks around and he says, I think they might be right. I think they might be right. They're cursing God. They're calling God, what are you going to do? And it doesn't seem like anything ever happens to them. It doesn't seem like anything ever happens. And, and in verse 10, it says, God's people turn back and look at the wicked and they, they find no fault in them. Well, apparently, what they're doing must not be that bad because nothing bad is happening to them. They don't suffer at all. They don't hurt. They're not in anguish. They're not stricken. Their lives are at ease. And finally, Asaph caps off his complaint against God in verse 12. And he says, behold. Now, remember, this is a prayer. This is Asaph talking to God. And behold means, hey, look here. Pay attention. Listen up. Asaph is, God, God, look down here. God, are you paying attention to what's going on? Here's the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. God, are are you ever going to do anything about this? Do you even know what's going on? Do you even care? (laughs) Asaph caps off his complaint with this line. Behold, God, pay attention. Look at what's going on. And what Asaph is doing in the first half of this psalm is he's making all these envious comparisons, looking at his life and comparing it with the lives of the wicked around him. He says, I'm holy, I'm good, I'm righteous, I work really hard. He even, he even elevates himself. A couple verses he says, all day long I've labored, I've pursued innocence, I've pursued purity and a clean heart. He elevates himself in contrast with the wicked around him and he says, I'm better than them. Why are their lives so great and my life is so difficult? Asaph is struggling, as do we, to reconcile his expectations with his experience, his expectations. God is good to those who are pure in heart. God is good to the good. If I do this, God's gonna respond this way. And yet the the experience that he has is he's done what he's supposed to do and other people haven't, and the results have been the opposite of what he expected. So he lodges this complaint, and we do the exact same thing. It's easy for us to look at this passage and see the poetry in it and see this exaggeration of everything that Asaph says and does. It's easy for us then to just go, wow, man, that guy is self-righteous. He, he believes he actually thinks he's that good? Man, this, all this guy does is complain. And because of the type of language he used, I think it's easy for us to sometimes distance ourselves and not see ourselves doing the exact same thing. It's easy to not see ourselves in this story, but we do, we all do. And I was thinking, where are the the gaps between our expectations and our experiences that lead us to complain? God, I, I haven't touched a tobacco product in my whole life. And that schmo over there smokes two packs a day and I'm the one that gets lung cancer? God, I work my tail off at my job. I have a great work ethic, I show up early, I leave late, I lead others, I help everybody else get their stuff done on time, and I'm gonna be passed over for a promotion in favor of this guy that doesn't actually work but takes credit for other people's work? That's not right. Parents, we use BabyWise, and our kids still aren't sleeping through the night at four years old. These parents over there, they don't seem to have a plan at all. And after two months, their kids are always sleeping through the night. I'm tired, God. I want to rest. Why isn't this working? God, I am a good steward of the resources that you've given me. I maintain a budget. And the number one line in my budget is my tithe. I'm good, God. And and you know what? I don't just tithe on my income. But when somebody gives me a gift, I tithe on my gift. And, And God... You don't say that I have to do that. God, I'm good, but why then would you allow my air conditioning unit and my car's transmission to blow out in the exact same time so that we have to wipe out our savings account to pay for it? For those of you that that have uh, experiences, either you've fostered kids or you have friends and family that have fostered, sometimes you end up with kids that don't look like you. And you go to the store and you've got your wick ready to go and you've got everything laid out on the belt and here's the stuff that you're paying with your own money and then you put the little dividing strip and here's the stuff that's gonna be paid for with this wick check. Here's the stuff that's gonna be paid for with this wick check. And you get in line, you put the stuff up and you've got all your kids with you and they're crying and just wanna get out of here. And here's the cashier that just looks at you. (gasps) Eye roll. And you get the, the people standing in line behind you that make the little snide remarks just loud enough. That you can hear. Maybe they should have stopped with two. Wow, how many has she, look at those kids, they're all, you get that sort of critique. And then here in the news this week, some lady named Chelsea Handler announces that she's had two abortions in the past year and she's lauded praise, is and praised, as courageous. Where's her judgment from other people? Why does it all come on me? God, my wife And I, we had a a pure relationship. We didn't have sex until marriage. We honored you with our relationship. We honored you with our lives and our passions, and we controlled that. Why can't we get pregnant? Why can't we have this baby that we so desperately want? Meanwhile, here's this couple over here. They don't seem to care at all about you. Sleep together. They get pregnant with a baby that they don't even want. And we can't seem to get pregnant with the child that we so desperately desire. God, I thought you said you were good. I thought you said, God, that you were good. Does that resonate with any of you? All of you? See, all of these kinds of experiences create gaps that lead us to complain. God, I expected this. This happened. What's up with that? We complain. The same thing that Asaph does. But you know what's at the heart of our complaining, even though we paint it in good language or just don't talk about it? What's at the heart of our complaining is this. And it's the first phase of a prayer of complaint that we see in Asaph I'm not getting what I deserve. I deserve better than this. I've worked hard, I'm good. God, look at me, don't you see how good I am? Don't you see how bad they are? This isn't fair, this isn't right, this isn't just. My life should be better than theirs. I'm not getting what I deserve. And whether or not we actually verbalize that complaint, it's already there in our hearts. And if we're not willing to to let that complaint come out in our prayer, we're actually costing ourselves. How can we honestly expect to grow in our trust of God if we're not willing to be honest with him? How, how can we expect God to provide comfort to our hurt and provide an answer to our complaint if we're too scared to tell him what's actually going on in our hearts? When we don't complain, when we try to cover this stuff up and act like it's not there, the only thing we're accomplishing is deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're in a better place than we really are. And for the sake of our hearts and our relationship with God, we need to tell our complaints to God. We need to be honest with him, open and vulnerable, say, God, this is where I am. This is what hurts. This is what I don't understand. God, I don't like it. It's okay to take that complaint like Asaph did. Take that complaint to God. But see, until we do that, we won't experience the peace and rest that God offers until we bring the burden of our unmet expectations and lay them at his feet. We see, clearly from this first section of Psalm 73, that complaining really does have its proper place in our prayers. But it can't end there. If, if our prayers consist primarily of complaining, at best, we're gonna end up Frustrated. And at worst, we we'll end up bitter, resentful even towards God for not doing what we think he ought to do. Asaph lets his emotions run free as he expresses all of his complaints. But then he transitions his focus, as we would also be wise to do. He transitions from what he subjectively feels to what he objectively knows is truth. His tone shifts as he goes from phase one of a prayer of complaint to phase two. His tone shifts from, I'm not getting what I deserve, to, oh, I'm not getting what I deserve. Here, starting in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph is exhausted by his efforts to figure all this out. You ever had that spiritual, mental, emotional exhaustion? because you're trying to figure out why life hasn't turned out the way you wanted it to and expected it to and hoped it would and you look at other people and you go why couldn't my life turn out like that? What? Why couldn't I have that? I thought I thought God's good I don't feel like God is good why isn't this happening? And you, just this exhaustion that overtakes you This is where Asaph is and, and once he's cleared his head of all his complaints he's just Cleansed it all. He's got nothing left to do but to worship. Nothing left to do but to worship. And and he goes before God. It's like he suddenly has this realization. Oh, yeah. You're God, and I'm not. You're good. I'm not. You're just. I'm not. God, you're in control. I'm not. And once he's cleared out his complaints, let it all fly, he begins then to focus on this truth of who God is. And part of who God is, is just. Asaph's reminded of God's justice and, and all of his complaints that he's not getting what he deserves and the wicked aren't getting what they deserve. He realizes, oh yeah, they are gonna get what they deserve. And you would think Reading this, after all these complaints, Asaph would be overjoyed that he'd find some pleasure in the wicked finally getting what they have coming to them. The language here is terrifying. They fall to ruin. They're destroyed instantaneously, swept away utterly by terrors, despised by God. And you would think Asaph would be going, yes, finally there's some justice in this world. Finally they're going to get what they deserve, but But you don't see that in him. You don't see it all this, this weird pleasure at the destruction of the wicked and knowing their end. Rather, Asaph comes to a very somber realization. And it's this. I'm no better than them. I deserve that end. I deserve to be destroyed utterly. I deserve to be despised by God. I deserve to be swept away by terrors. You know why I know that? because I was ignorant. I was arrogant, I was brutish, I was like a beast toward God, I ignored God, I turned away from what he said. I'm no better and I deserve no different than them. He goes from contrasting himself with the wicked to comparing himself with them and he realizes I deserve what they deserve. But we said in this phase, the transition is, I'm not getting what I deserve To Oh, I'm not getting what I deserve. And Asaph comes to this point and says, wow, the only thing that makes my end different than theirs is the grace of God. The only reason that I'm not going to be swept away utterly, the only reason that I'm not going to be destroyed in an instant is because of God's grace. In verse 23 nevertheless i am continually with you you hold me in your right hand you guide me with your counsel afterward you'll receive me to glory that's my end and it's it's not what i deserve i'm not getting what i deserve and i want to just stop for a moment and say christians in this room we've got to make this transition in our prayers When we complain, we can't just stop at complaining because we're not getting what we deserve. We have to remember the truth of the fact that because of the grace of God, we aren't getting what we deserve and that's good news for us. And if we don't get to that point, if we don't focus on the truth of what God has, the judgment that God has withheld from us, we stay in complaint and we grow in self-righteousness and arrogance and and looking around and, and condescendingly at people. Constantly trying to compare ourselves and make sure that we are better than other people. And there's a pressure that comes with that. There's a pressure that goes, I, I always got to make sure there's at least one person worse than me so that I have some sort of ground with which to lift myself up and think that I deserve more than I really do. We have to make this transition, the, the realization of truth from I'm not getting what I deserve to I'm not getting what I deserve. Asaph goes there, but but that's not the final stage of his prayer. So the final phase of a prayer that begins with complaint is this. We go, I'm not getting what I deserve. Oh, I'm not getting what I deserve to this. Oh, wow. Wow, I have gotten what I didn't deserve. Verses 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is a strength in my heart and my portion forever. Stop there for a second. I've gotten what I didn't deserve. Esaph lays out three things here that he says, here's what I have that I didn't work for. Here's what I have that I didn't earn. Here's what I have that I didn't deserve. And we have these things too. So here are the three things that we have that we didn't deserve. Number one, we have relationship with God. The first line, whom have I in heaven but you? The implication of that, I have you. We don't deserve relationship with God, and yet in his grace, he's given it to us through Jesus the God who's created all things, the God who cares desperately about the workings of your heart and the pain that you're experiencing and what you're suffering and your loss and your hurt and your trial and your affliction, that's the God with whom we have relationship. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it, but he's freely given it to us anyway. We have relationship with God. The second thing that we have that we didn't deserve is security in God says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Right before this, he goes, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And let's be honest, that is a bold statement and it's probably a lie. But I think about it. We can say over and over again, God, all I want is you. We're to sing a song at the end of this, all I have is Christ. There's another song called Enough. It says all of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst, for every need. You satisfy me, God. You're more than enough for me. And we can say that. But let's be honest. How often do our other desires overshadow our desires for God? What are those desires? Sweet truck, promotion, more kids, fewer kids? I don't care how many kids as long as they're just obedient and make my life comfortable. A husband, a wife, boyfriend. What are those desires that we have? And they often overshadow our desires for God. But what he, what he points out here is we have the security. As my flesh and my heart will fail, I'll allow other desires to overtake my desire for you. But God, in spite of that, you remain strength of my heart, my portion Forever. Nothing takes me away from your love for me, God. Even when I turn away from you and focus on other desires and want other things more than I want you, your love for me doesn't change. You don't let me run away. You pull me back, even though sometimes it hurts. But God, I've got a security in you that no matter what else I look to, your love doesn't fail. Your love for me doesn't end. We have security in God. We'll fail, but he doesn't. The third thing that we have that we didn't deserve is God as our portion. God is our portion. Now, portion uh, is an interesting word. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word portion, I think about food. I, I think about food a lot. <laughs> and when I think about the word portion, I usually think about the portions of food that are on my plate and the fear that they won't be big enough or that they will be too green. <laughs> but that's not the type of portion that Asaph is talking about here. The word that he uses shows up dozens of times, especially in the first five books of the Bible, especially in in, uh, the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. We see this word portion show up. And before we read this this verse here on the screen, I want to just kind of set a little bit of context. Quick history lesson here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of the nation of Israel. Jacob has a bunch of sons. They go into the promised land of Canaan, and the, the land is divided up between each one of the sons according to however big that their tribe was. And so Judah, you get this amount. Benjamin, you get this amount. Dan here, Gad here, Manasseh here, Ephraim here. And everybody gets their inheritance, also called a portion. But there was one tribe that didn't get this inheritance, one tribe that didn't get this portion. It was the tribe of Levi. And so this passage here in Numbers 18, verse 20, we see the same word portion show up that Asaph uses in Psalm 73. This helps us understand what he means. Here's what he says in Numbers 18, 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. This is where it gets good. I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the people of Israel. This is what God is saying to the tribe of Levi. And by the way, their job was, they served as, if you will, the pastors of the Old Testament church. They were the priests that went in and made sacrifices. It was the, the most high priest that came from the tribe of Levi that once a year would go into the Holy of Holies, into the tabernacle where God's presence was, and made a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the forgiveness of sins for the whole nation of Israel. And God's telling them, Levi, I'm not going to give you a portion the way that you expected me to give you a portion. I'm not going to give you land and the borders and all this stuff. but I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to be your portion. In a way that no one else does, you have access to me directly. Everyone else, all of your cousins, everyone else in the nation of Israel, the only way they can get to me is through you. But you, Levi, you get me personally, directly. You have access to and relationship with me. And you might be sad, Levi, that that you don't get some of the other stuff that your brothers get. But you know what, if you were to have those, it would mean you couldn't have me. I am your portion. I am your inheritance. I am your purpose. I am your satisfaction. I am your fulfillment. And we have that as well. When we say God is our portion, we've been given something that we didn't deserve and that is God as our portion. That means is we have access to God. God listens when we pray. We can walk boldly into God's presence and pray even to complain. And God cares. And he listens. And he's with us. God is our portion. Even when the rest of our life just doesn't work out the way we want it to. Even when our lives hurt and we don't understand what's going on and we wish that anything else other than what's going on right now would be going on. God says, I'm enough for you and you have me. I am your portion. And Asaph redefines good. The very beginning, he kind of says, my idea of good is that God is good to the pure in heart, but he's good this way. I get what I deserve. I get this good stuff. I get what I want. I get a comfortable life. And he says, he redefines good here in the last verse. He says, but for me, it's good to be near to God. You know what, God? All this other stuff, yeah, I want that. It'd be nice to have ease and riches and, and to be healthy and it'd be nice to have all this stuff. But now that I've complained and let that out, now that I've remembered the truth of, I didn't get what I deserved, and you've given me what I didn't deserve. Really, God, the only good I need is to be close to you. And we're able to redefine good that way as well because Jesus has given us that access to God as our Father. There's a, a parallel here. So Asaph starts off and he says, Look at me, look how good I am. We have Jesus on the cross, knows exactly how good he was. Perfect, sinless, all the things that that we fail at, he does perfectly, he obeys. Asaph says, they're not getting what they deserve, look how bad they are. Jesus on the cross, he knows exactly how bad we are. And yet for the joy set before him, he willingly endured the cross. And the pain and the suffering that came with it, out of love for us. Asaph's the heart of his complaint: "I'm not getting what I deserve." Jesus on the cross didn't get what he deserved. Jesus had perfect relationship with God the Father, and yet there's a moment on the cross. Where Jesus cries out, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And interestingly, it's the only time in all of Jesus' recorded words that we have, it's the only time where he doesn't refer to God as Father because he realizes in that moment something in their relationship has changed, something is broken. In that moment, Jesus gets what he doesn't deserve. God pours out his wrath for sin on Jesus. He didn't deserve that. God turns his back on Jesus in that moment he didn't deserve that but why would God do that why would Jesus go through that for us God turned his back on Jesus so that he could turn toward us Jesus covers our sin so that we can have access to the Father through Jesus God is our portion he's given us what we didn't deserve out of grace out of love What do we do with this? How do we we incorporate this into our prayers? So I want to give you three things. I want to give you an exhortation. I want to give you a challenge. I want to give you a warning. Here's the exhortation. There is no place for safe prayer. In our lives, there is no place for safe prayers. And here's what I mean by safe prayers. This is basically how I pray 99% of the time. God, thanks for today, thanks for this food, thanks for my family, thanks for my house, thanks for my job, thanks for this stuff. God, help me do good on this test, God, give me wisdom to answer the questions on the, the interview well. Safe prayers, nothing wrong with those. But if that's all that we pray, safe prayers, we're, we're robbing ourselves of truly experiencing the comfort of God's presence. We're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to grow in our trust and our understanding of God's goodness and God's sovereignty. There is no place in our lives for safe prayer. But here's the challenge. If you, like me, find it very uncomfortable to pray unsafe prayers... If you're afraid to complain to God because you go, Ooh, "What if I pray wrong? What if I say the wrong thing? What if God gets mad at me? What if what if this changes my relationship with God? If you're afraid like me to pray unsafe prayers, here's the challenge, there's a question you need to ask yourself and it's this. How big is your God? How big is your God? Is he big enough to handle your complaint? Is your God big enough to handle your fear, your doubt, your insecurity, your anger, your indignation? Because if he's not, then he's not the God of the Bible. He's not the God that Asaph is praying to and showing us how to pray. If your God isn't big enough to handle your complaint, you know who he is? He's you. I don't don't want people bringing their complaints to me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want people to, to doubt me, to, to call into question my intelligence, my, my skills, my talents, my decision-making. I can't, I can't hear that. That shakes me too much. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't wanna deal with that. And if I'm afraid, if we're afraid to pray unsafe prayers to God, what that reveals is we don't think God's big enough to handle it. So I challenge you to pray some unsafe prayers to take some time thinking about, is God really big enough to handle this? Let me tell you, remember this is the God who created the universe. He's got some pretty big shoulders. I'm pretty sure that even if you pray the wrong words and say it the wrong way and even if you accidentally cuss in your prayers at God, or maybe not so accidentally, he can handle it. And remember we have the security. Nothing takes you away from him. Here's the warning. Sometimes God actually answers our prayers. Sometimes God answers our prayers of complaint. Be careful what you wish for. Sometimes you just might get it. There are a couple different ways in which God answers complaining. We see Habakkuk, who's a minor prophet, was complaining to God during the time when Israel, the nation of Israel was suffering and, and the, their enemies, Assyria, was gaining in power. Habakkuk complains God, why? What are you doing? God goes, Habakkuk, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. But you know what? I'll tell you anyway. And God tells him. And Habakkuk goes, hmm, I did not see that coming. And then he keeps complaining. God goes, I I told you, you wouldn't understand. A guy named Job, the book right before Psalms, suffered more in his life than any of us could possibly imagine, for the most part. He spends... A majority of the book of job refusing to complain against god and finally after his wife nags him a ton after his friends nag him a ton he goes all right fine And he kind of puts god on the stand god what are you doing why are you allowing this this isn't right this isn't fair this isn't just i don't deserve this and god's answer to job hey job where were you when i made the world where were you when I put the fish in the sea? Where were you when I breathed life into mankind? Hey Job, where were you when I sprinkled snow on the mountains? Can you make lightning come out of your fingers? God's answer is, Job, I'm God, you're not. Well, of course, that's why I'm asking you, because you're God. But that's his answer. I'm God, I've got a plan. I'm bigger than you can imagine. I'm God. Another way that God answers our complaints is with uh, kind of the hindsight is 2020. You'll see when I'm done, and you'll look back and go, oh, wow, that's what you were doing. 2 Corinthians 1 says God comforts us in our afflictions so that we are then able later on to comfort others in their time of affliction and their need. God comforts us so that later on we can be a part of how he comforts someone else. And and that's great, and it's cool to be able to look back on that and go, wow, that's really, really neat. I'm glad I was able to do that. But it's hard in the moment doesn't make your wife come back. It doesn't make the pain any less. When God says, wait, you'll see. Here's the thing. The fact that God even answers our prayers in the first place, even if it's an answer that we don't like, is evidence that we have relationship with him. And any answer at all ought to bring comfort and relief and encouragement because God listens, because he's there, because he cares, because he's present with us. And the only way we get to that place is if we're willing to complain in the first place. We recognize, ah, oh, I'm not actually getting what I deserve. And in gratitude, we begin to worship God because of what he's given us that we didn't deserve. When we take our complaints to God in prayer, we might get an answer. It could very well be an answer that we don't like or an answer we don't understand. But the benefit is not the answer itself. The benefit is that we have access to and relationship with the God who does have those answers.